My name is Michael Cox from the Communications Office at the University of Warwick. Today I'm talking to Warwick PhD student Adair Richards and Professor Alison Roger, who is the Director of MOAC, the Molecular Organisation and Assembly in Cells Doctoral Training Centre. Adair has recently become one of the youngest ever authors to be featured on the cover of leading European chemistry journal Chemical Society Reviews for his article written with Professor Roger on the ways in which man-made metal-containing molecules can be designed to interact with the DNA found in human cells. This is the basis for many anti-cancer drugs and also new types of antibiotics. Firstly, Alison, could you give a brief introduction to MOAC, why it was set up, what it does and what it aims to achieve? Okay, we started in 2003, which at the moment seems a lifetime ago, although it's not very long ago. Adair was one of the first students that started on our programme. It was an initiative from the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, which basically funds, as it says, research that's in the Engineering and Physical Sciences area. They were very concerned that there was a lot of work in biology, medicine and so on, but it didn't really overlap with the techniques and expertise that we've got in physical sciences. So maybe we make a nice piece of equipment and we do an experiment with it, but it could be applied in all sorts of different areas and we're just not doing it. So that was their goal. We put in a proposal to them saying that we wanted to work in the area of studying molecules in cells, how one molecule like a protein interacts with another molecule, maybe a DNA. In the case of Adair's work, small molecules that contain metals. And so that was the plan. How it's worked out has been that we've got a community of people who do their PhDs in chemistry, in physics, in biology, in medicine. Everybody is doing their work in two different departments, which is great fun, but also rather challenging. They often have supervisors who can't communicate with each other, so they have to communicate across those boundaries. So the students we've got are really very special, and they have quite a good training program that helps them to do that. And in a way, they're dragging those of us who are a bit older along behind them. So that's our goal. New scientist. Okay, thank you. Moving on to the article that was obviously featured recently in the journal. Firstly, just to give a bit of background information, could you explain what DNA is for us? Of course. Well, DNA is really the building block of of cells and building block of who we are in many ways. It was discovered in the, the 19th century and that there was these phosphorus-containing molecules that were in pus cells that uh, the scientists found. And the big breakthrough was in 1953, when Watson and Crick discovered the double helical structure of DNA, which is often a model you'll see in schools or in classrooms. But DNA is, of course, a lot more complicated than this. As opposed to the the twin rail tracks approach, which you often kind of see in this great linear uh, diagram, actually DNA is much more complicated. Its normal form in cells is in some kind of uh, some kind of ball, like a, a knitting wool ball, and that there's molecules interacting with it at all times. Various parts of the DNA are splitting and coming back together. Fundamentally, there are four bases in DNA, which is, gives you the variation between them, and they're called adenine, cytosine, thymine, and guanine. And there's only that four-point permutations for each base pair, and that's in DNA stretching from viruses, bacteria, animals, and all humans. But whereas in humans, we might have up to 10 or 12 billion of these base pairs, that's a huge amount of variation. Uh, and it's those variations, that code, that codes for the proteins in our cells, which are the things that actually do stuff. How do you go about uh, making a metallomolecule interact with human DNA? Well, you have to look at the properties of what you're trying to uh, attract. So you've got DNA, and one of the, the great characteristics of DNA is that it's charged, in the same way that a magnet is, has, has a polarisation. 
DNA has a, a negative charge. Uh, and so the obvious thing is to create a molecule which has a positive charge. And if they were put in close vicinity, if you could somehow transport this metal molecule from the outside right into the cell, into that next to the DNA, it's going to bind in some way. So that that is the basic um, way that we'd look at it. But then it becomes much more complicated because you wanted it to bind in specific fashions to DNA. You wanted to do specific things. So, for example, you can have some molecules that uh, have atoms that, that intercalate within within these base pairs. You'll have some that bind to the, the backbone of the DNA. And you'll have some that bind within the major or the minor grooves of these DNA. So there's a whole host of different methods that these can operate in. And why is this a desirable thing to do? When you say desirable, what do you mean by that? Well, what are you hoping to, to achieve by um, m- making molecules bind to DNA in this way? Okay, DNA is, if you like, the magic molecule that gives the instructions for everything else. One of the things we want to do is to understand how it gives that instructions. How do you get the bit of knitting wool to use a day's picture that's right in the middle to come out to the surface to do its job on cue? We really don't know the answer to some of these questions. We're getting clues. Other times you may have a piece of DNA that is the instructions for producing a protein that we really don't want to have. It might be something that causes cancer ultimately. And so we want to get that out of doing any job that it imagines it wants to do. So some of the molecules that we've been looking at that bind to DNA are specifically there to stop the DNA doing something. Some of them are there to start it doing something that it's not doing enough of. So we're trying to sort of say, what's the shape of the DNA? How can something bind to it? To do a job that we want to control in a way that maybe it's not working properly or we want to help it along and you can think of all sorts of genetic diseases that one might like to affect in some way. We're not necessarily able to do it yet, but the sort of dream is there. If DNA's got the instructions, we can control which page to read off. We can then control the whole system much, much better. In my opinion, perhaps the major scientific breakthrough the last 10, 15 years has been the Human Genome Project, uh, which has had much press coverage, and that was where they've annotated the entire human genome, which is billions of base pairs. And that's provided so much data that actually we need scientists who are capable both in the biology of understanding this and the biological role of DNA, but also the mathematics and the computational side of things, just to deal with this vast amount of data so that we can perhaps look towards these gene therapy and these other types of approaches in the future. Um, And is this, in terms of the research that you're doing now, are you working on a completely new technology or are you actually improving existing methods? Where does it where does it lie in the grand scheme of things? The research that I'm particularly involved in is looking at antibiotics and new types of antibiotics. Now, the field of ant- antibacterial agents is fascinating. Up until the 1940s, bacteria were, were really kind of having the victory over humans in many ways. The first antibiotic was penicillin that was licensed in 1943 and that saved many, many, many lives. Um, But even as early as 1947, you were seeing the first clinical cases of resistant bacteria. And resistance builds up when, as the bacteria multiply, their DNA multiplies, and occasionally there are mistakes in this multiplication. Uh, And randomly, sometimes these mistakes will mean that the proteins are slightly different than it makes, and it makes them resistant to this penicillin or whatever drug it is, uh, in a completely random fashion. But then once you treat a whole set of these bacteria with this penicillin, all of the normal bacteria will die. However, these resistant bacteria will survive, and they will multiply and form a new strain. And this is what we call drug resistance. And you see this worldwide, and it develops over time. 
Now, the World Health Organization uh, tries to limit this spread of resistance, and they do that by rotating drugs through countries and by trying to encourage your doctor not to prescribe you antibiotics if you've got a cold or a virus, for example. And the other way, of course, is drug development. It's designing new types of drugs. Now, up until a couple of years ago, there, were, there have been no new kinds of antibiotics for the last 20 years. There were just improvements on old versions. Uh, one that's been released in the UK two, three years ago now is Linesolid, which is the first of a new type of antibiotic. Now, what I'm looking at is a completely different type of antibiotic again. It's trying to design these metallomolecules, so it's molecules with metal in, that bind to DNA in specific ways that cause the DNA to curl up into a ball uh, and as such are, it's completely useless to the bacteria and they will eventually die out and so that's the, the approach that I'm taking And will, will this approach minimise then the resistance development? Unfortunately we can't avoid the resistance development uh, so this, is, this isn't a qualitatively different approach in that sense but then if this drug or if this type of drug were to eventually become licensed then there might be another 20, 30, 40 years worth of use out of it You've touched on um, you, you touched on there what, you, what you're doing at the moment. Do you want to expand on that a little bit, just to specifically talk about what what your article was about that was featured in the journal? Shall I start? Yes. There? This was called a tutorial review, and the name rather says it all. It's aimed to teach people about work that we've done that lots of other people have done. So what we did was we picked out a lot of molecules that bind to DNA that have metals in them and we reviewed what's been done with them and it included some of the molecules we've worked with some of the molecules other people have worked with would you like to give a little bit more detail on some of them i mean sure i mean the the, the major one that i often talk about is a molecule called cisplatin uh, which was first licensed for clinical use in the 70s um and that is the the number one anti-cancer drug in use in the world and its derivatives and at its core it's a very very simple molecule just a, a platinum with, with four other atoms around it. And that's actually a DNA binder. Um, and when it was licensed for use, nobody actually knew how it worked other than for some reason it did work. It's another one of these great scientific accidents that seem to pervade scientific research. Uh, and that's, that's kind of, as the years have gone by, people understand better how that molecule works. Uh, and new generations of, of that type of molecule have been developed. So, I mean, anti-tumor properties are, are a, a big step forward, I think, that we can do with this research. Um, there's other drugs in clinical trials in Italy at the moment um, that we've been looking at, ruthenium-based molecules, which is another metal. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a great potential here. Summarise, then, the key areas of medicine that the research will hopefully go on to benefit. You touched on them briefly, but if you want to um, bring them together, that would be good. We've got a balance of different things. Some of what we're doing is just trying to understand what's an incredibly complicated molecular system, because if we don't understand, we can't design. Cisplatin was discovered by mistake. Someone was doing a different kind of experiment, but they were very careful in their observations, so they noticed that the cells were growing and growing and growing and not dividing, and they said, what's causing this? And eventually they identified which molecule it was. Sometimes molecules have been designed intentionally and you get what you want but often the target molecule like DNA is so complicated we just don't understand so a lot of our efforts is merely to understand so that we can then be intelligent about designing new molecules and maybe we want to design molecules where the metal so-called covalently binds to the DNA so it attaches really firmly or maybe we want something that just sits on the DNA to stop something else getting in 
And there are a number of different possibilities, and it depends what we're trying to do. And at the moment, a lot of what we're doing, we have to say, is guesswork. We don't understand enough. So we've got two sides, trying to understand, and then the other side, once we understand a little bit more, designing intelligently to achieve a particular aim. Do you think you can make any predictions as to, uh, you know, some great breakthroughs that you hope to achieve? <laughs> it's very hard to predict that kind of thing. There's a certain element of almost scientific luck involved with the experiments that we try. By the very nature of research, you don't know the answer until you try it out. Of course. But we, we certainly hope to carry this forward as, as, as far as we can um, in collaboration with groups across the country and worldwide. And in terms of, of timescales, some of the experiments and the trials that you're doing, I mean, can you perhaps give some examples of when they might filter through into... Um, I'm involved in a project where it's just going through the final stages of being approved for licensing, and that project started developing 15, 20 years ago. Things are speeding up somewhat now, but on the other side there's much more concern about safety. Um, Apparently aspirin would not be licensed as a drug now because it's not safe enough, and most of us can't imagine life without aspirin or its various other forms, so... We're in a balance, and everybody knows we have to speed up the process, but if you want to be careful, and there are enough examples recently where one knows that care is important, that slows the process down. That was something that I was going to actually go on to, really. I mean, are there any sort of risks associated with these kind of techniques? Of course there are. There are risks associated with every medicine you take. If you read the instructions, the side effects are many. And unfortunately, in, in the news you see in clinical trials, there are unfortunate cases of, where they've had very negative side effects. Cisplatin itself, the target molecule is DNA. And we do now know that DNA is what has the efficacy in the clinic, but it has an unpleasant side effects, as any person would know who's had it. And that's because it binds to other molecules. We tell it that we want it to go for the DNA. It finds a nice friendly protein molecule along the way and it stops off. So not necessarily all of the drugs that you administer to somebody ends up where you think you would like it to go. Mm. And am I right in suggesting that developments in nanotechnology might help to target these things better? All the scientific developments that are going on at the moment will help targeting, either on a molecular level or physically. It's very easy to imagine with a skin cancer that you only deal locally with where the skin cancer is, and we can all visualise that. But other forms of cancer as well, localised treatment is becoming more and more possible, and that makes things much, much easier. Is there anything that we can do on a practical level to combat this resistance, do you think? You talked about doctors not prescribing drugs unnecessarily, um, but, I mean, can we do things to be a bit more proactive to try and try and stop this developing? I mean, certainly there's different people have different levels that they can help on it. As a patient, the thing that you can do that would help most is to complete your course of antibiotics um, and not, if you start feeling better, not stop taking them because actually that does increase the population of resistant bacteria. Uh, as doctors, they have to follow very carefully the guidelines given by the World Health Organization as to when they should prescribe antibiotics and which ones they should use. Um, as, as a country, perhaps we have to think about how, how we look at funding. Drug trials, for example, can cost anywhere between three and 800 million US dollars. Uh, universities obviously have nowhere near that kind of money. And so it's the, it's the large pharmaceutical companies that end up funding this. But these are profit-driven companies by their very nature. 
And so, for example, only 1.5% of drugs in the drug pipeline are actually antibacterial at the moment. And that's because the market is not as high as it would be. And you do get some philanthropists, for example, Bill Gates Foundation, which is investing in the treatment of curable diseases such as tuberculosis, but making that, um, making those di- the cures for those diseases much more prevalent and easier and easier to administer. So it's, it's um, public sector funding and charitable donations that can make a difference to the direction that the money is funded. If you look, for example, at yesterday's budget, there's a 2.5% increase in the, from the UK government to science in the UK year on year for the next four or five years. I mean, and that's uh, up to 0.39% of the British GDP, which is actually quite a lot of money. And so we have to look in terms of um, a scientific community about where our strategically where our money goes, what kind of research we're promoting. Part of the department, the MOAC, which we're part of, is encouraging this work between disciplines, this work between mathematicians, computational scientists, and biologists, chemists, and uh, people working in, in the clinic. And so it's often this communication which, which can reveal huge new breakthroughs which we didn't see previously. And the particular areas that you're looking at and the ways of developing antibiotics, are these relative to other methods of um, producing drugs, are they expensive or is it on a par with other other treatments? I mean, if we take this down the line and extrapolate the, the results, is it likely to be something that will be widely available or do you think the cost might be prohibitive? The way that regulations are run at the moment... Um, the pharmaceutical companies will hold a patent for a drug for a certain number of years before it becomes generic. And the way that anyone who uh, reads their junk mail filters will understand this is by the prevalence of Viagra emails that you're likely to get, as that has in the last few years become a generic drug. And so the cost uh, diminishes hugely. So it's a case of being expensive when it's first introduced yeah. and hopefully the cost the, reduces The actual molecules time. are often not very expensive. Um, but in order to get to the one molecule that actually ends up in the clinic. There have been a lot of failures along the way. It's a very, very expensive process. And you can argue that drug companies oughtn't to make so much money, and we could go round and round in circles on that with probably not enough knowledge to carry the argument through. But there is an element to which we're, they're having to invest up front an awful lot of money, and if we want them to do it next time round, somewhere they've got to create the piggy bank in order to do it it's not an obvious question to me i just don't know enough about it but okay it's the development that's the cost usually i I think the issue here is that we've we've designed some molecules we know how they interact some of them will end up in the clinic when i say we i mean the scientific community some of them are in the clinic some of them will end up in the clinic many of them will just give us more information that will enable us to then proceed on and maybe modify what we've already got or design new molecules with new me- modes of interaction with DNA. I think at the heart of academic research is this quest for new knowledge and this quest for answering questions, although I find that it often just brings up far more questions than you started with. And certainly as a scientific research community, this search for new knowledge is, is really important. And the payoff, if you like, in terms of a drug or some discovery that you might benefit from when you go to the doctor is usually 10, 20 years down the track. And so I can look back 20 years and say what was done then, and that's where we are now. And at the moment we're sort of doing the groundwork for something that will make a difference to somebody maybe in 10 or 20 years' time. It's a, it's a long-term process. OK, Adair, Alison, thank you very much. Thank you.